that song is popular, obviously because Pharrell's awesome, but, but other than that, I think that song and that video in particular, I mean, tons of spoofs made about that, you know, Weird Al just came out this week, which I didn't even know he still existed, but uh, Tacky, the last thing I remember him doing was the Gangster's Paradise uh, spoof, um, which I can't even remember what the title was, but... Um, what was it? Amish Paradise, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I didn't even know he existed. But anyways, very popular video for, I think, a couple reasons. I think, one, because everybody wants to be happy, right? I mean, no one's down on happiness. No one goes, mm, no, I don't think so. Just be quiet. I, I, I don't want to be happy. I mean, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. We all, um, we all have these desires for happiness. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. I mean, it's, it's something that we all desire. In fact, it's not just one of our desires. I believe that the desire for happiness is the desire. It's the core desire that we all have. It's the main motivation, the, the motivation for everything that we do. There's a, a man named Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, mathematician, probably read some of his stuff at some point in college. And this is what he says. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. This is several hundred years ago that he wrote this. And he says that every step that we take is one that we take towards happiness. And it might be very different things. One person going to war, one person not going to war. It's both for the same reason. It's for happiness. So I think that song by Pharrell is a very popular Uh, rings true with us because we all want to be happy. But also, I think it's very popular. I think it blew up because though we all want happiness, it's also something that we all tend to not have all the time. It's something that we all want, we all pursue, and yet we wouldn't all say, yes, I'm happy all the time. I'm happy always. It's hard. It's, a, it's something that's kind of hard to keep, something hard to, to have with us enduringly. And so we like things like songs and inspirational quotes and not, this one's not inspirational, but songs and inspirational quotes and, and things along that end that help us, if even for a moment, to inject some happiness into our lives. So that song, I think, hits kind of those two chords in our hearts. We all want happiness, and yet we kind of need songs like that or, or experiences or people to, to bolster our happiness. So, so what about you? Are you happy? Um, do you feel happy? Do you feel, another word the Bible uses for this is content? Do you feel contentment in your life? Do you feel happy? Do you feel contentment? This is what we're going to talk about tonight. This is what Paul is going to speak to us about tonight. And, and here is what we'll look at. We'll look at how often happiness is this elusive thing. We, we'll look at the pursuit of happiness. We'll look at the secret of happiness. And we'll look at the strength for happiness. Three different things that we see from what Paul talks about. And here's what I want you to think about. What if it was possible that you could be happy, that you could be content no matter what happened? What if it's possible that you could be happy, that you could be content, that you could be joyful regardless of what life brings to you, both on the the grand scale and the specific scale? What if you could really have enduring happiness, lasting happiness? So this is what we will look at. This is what Paul talks to us about. Here's what Paul says, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's writing to the Philippian church and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing that now you've, you've got concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So they've kind of always had love for him. They've always had uh, concern for him, but but he's not always in need, so they don't necessarily always have an outlet for that. So I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to bound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's look at these three things. First, the pursuit of happiness. See, why is happiness elusive? Why is it something that's hard to grasp onto and keep? If we all want to be happy, why is it something that we don't all necessarily consistently have? And I'm not saying everyone walks around with their head drooping down and thinking life is horrible, but, but don't you feel, man, sometimes, yeah, I'm not happy, I'm not content. Why, if it's something we all want, do we not always have it? I mean, if I can't speak for everyone in the room, but most of us that are humans love coffee, right? And we all want it. We all want coffee. Do we have it? Yes, we do. Why is happiness so different from that? Why do we all want universal need happiness, and yet we don't always all have it all the time? Why is that the case? And I know I mean, happiness and coffee are different, but why is it that though we all pursue it, we all want it, we don't all have it? Why does it seem so elusive, this pursuit that we have? See, if, if, if we're honest, much of our life we're actually discontent with. Discontent with our jobs, discontent with our pay, discontent with our things and our possessions. We want better ones and nicer ones, discontent with our houses and the problems here, discontent with our spouses, discontent with, I mean, we're discontent. We're, we're discontent people. We don't just live in this sense of broad happiness or specific happiness. What I mean by that is sometimes, and I don't, right now, you might look at your life just overarching and say, you know what? Overarchingly, I'm discontent. Overarchingly, I'm not happy. Or maybe you would say, no, actually, when I look at the whole of my life, I'm happy, I'm content. Yeah, but what about this week? I mean, what were you discontent about this week? What did you get unhappy about this week? It's not necessarily every second, every day that you're filled with an enduring happiness and contentment. So why, why is that the case? Why, though we pursue happiness, why do we live with such discontentment? What, what are you unhappy about? Here's what I find interesting. The, the same world that tells us, be happy. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever feels good to you, follow your heart, follow your dreams. Whatever makes you feel good, that's what's right. Let your heart be your guide. Let happiness be your your compass. The same world that tells us that also tells us, don't be happy. You're discontent. You're unhappy. That's the entire advertising, marketing, commercial industry. They tell you, even though you didn't know, hey, guess what? You are unhappy. I mean, that's what a commercial is. You're fine. And then a commercial comes on and it tells you, oh, by the way, you need an iPhone to be happy. Oh, by the way, you need a, I don't know if, I I just saw this today. I know I'm a little behind, or not today, but this week, a little behind the game, a lot behind the game. But there's this Kickstarter um, cooler. Have you guys seen this? It's this new cooler that's amazing, okay? And it's $200 and it's got LED lights and it can play music and it's waterproof Bluetooth and it's uh, got storage for paper. It's, it's really cool. And they've raised seven, they're the breaking record, $7 million or something like that. And when I saw that, I wanted it. And I felt I didn't even know I needed a cooler and now I do need a cooler. And now I'm discontent with the cooler I have. And even the name of it, the name of it is Coolest. Which, which is to say, basically, your cooler's lame. That's the name of it. Your cooler is lame. And I felt that. I almost bought it, but I was like, if I buy a $200 cooler, Sarah is going to think, are you crazy? We don't need a $200 cooler. Yes, I do. I'm unhappy without that cooler. That's what a commercial is. It tells you, you are unhappy. You are discontent. You are sad, and you didn't even know it. I, on my Facebook newsfeed, I'll see these Dollar Shave Club things come up with this sweet little box and these blades, and, and I don't even shave. I trim my beard, but I don't shave. I don't need that, but I want that because apparently that will bring me happiness. That's so we live in this world that tells us, 
follow your heart, be happy, look inside yourself, whatever. And we, at the same time, it's the same world saying, you're not happy. You are discontent. See, if you had this, then you would be content. I mean, we live in this world that actually encourages discontentment while we're pursuing, we're pursuing. And the thing is this, it works. I mean, think about how fickle our contentment, how fickle our happiness is, that just the suggestion that we're discontent produces discontent. Just the suggestion that we're not happy produces in us an urge to go buy something to go get something, to go pursue that experience, pursue that relationship, to go purchase that product. Just the suggestion that we're unhappy without it produces in us the inclination. That's how fickle our contentment, how fickle our our happiness actually is. And we do it. We go after it. And for a moment, it works, right? If you got that coolest and you, I mean, you you would be on cloud nine, and if you get it, please invite me to a barbecue so I can be on the cloud with you. But it would be amazing for a moment. And then it goes away, right? I mean, you're, those things aren't enduring. It's like if you're having a bad day and you have a bowl of ice cream. It feels good for a moment, but it, that ice cream doesn't take you through the week. When the week's hard, you don't go, yeah, but I had that ice cream on Wednesday. I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't work. It works for a moment, but it doesn't work enduringly, right? And some of you have done this. You've lived the Denver dream. Right? There's the American dream, which is white picket fence and you know, make your own way in the world and get a job and two and a half kids or whatever. Okay? But the Denver dream is move to Denver, live it up, have fun, go to the mountains. I mean, Denver offers so much cool stuff. We live in an amazing city. I mean, everybody knows that it's consistently ranked as one of the coolest, hottest, hippest, whatever, awesome cities. And it is. And some of you moved here for that and you live the Denver dream and you did it all. You did all the cool things it had to offer. You soaked it all up. And then what happened? If you've been here one year, two years, three years, you find, you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. I thought moving here, I'd be full, I'd be content. It's not enough. And then maybe what happens is you actually become addicted to those things. So you have to have it. So it's not even just an enjoyable activity anymore. It's, man, my week is horrible and I've got to last to the weekend. So that when I get to the weekend, I can do my activities. Or maybe, man, I'm scra- I've met many people here. I'm just scrapping the nine to five job and I'm getting a super flexible job. That way I can always have these things, the rafting and the kayaking and the climbing and the mountain biking and the skiing and the, all the Denver stuff that people love or just the eating and the hanging out and the partying and whatever. So it either becomes, man, it's not enough. It's like a drug. It's not actually bringing me to that place anymore or I have to have it. Or it's just jumping to the next thing, okay? And I've talked to some people. Man, I've, okay, I lived here now for three years and I did it. But now I'm starting to feel low again, so I need something else. Maybe I need to, now I need a girlfriend, or now I need a boyfriend, or now I need a more fulfilling career, or now I need, it's just always something else. It doesn't last. It doesn't fulfill. So we've got this pursuit of happiness, this desire for happiness. And some of you have tried it. You've tried everything that there is. And some of you are in the early stages of that and think it's going to work. And some of you have done it and you go, yeah, you know what? It didn't work. It didn't fulfill. It didn't do what it promised it would do. Maybe, maybe if I just have a little bit more, sometimes that's the trap we fall into. Maybe if my job was just a little bit better. If I just had a little bit more money, you know, there's studies that have been done that say people that make 30,000 think if they had 35, everything would be okay. People that make 35, they just had 40, everything would be okay. People that make 75, if I just had 80, everything would be okay. Just a little bit more. Okay, skiing, you know what? Not quite doing it for me anymore. I need skiing in a cabin. Okay, skiing in a cabin, not quite. I need skiing in a cabin with better friends and better skis and a better cabin. And better, I mean, it's just a little bit more then I'll be okay. So we've got this endless pursuit for happiness. And here's what the Bible calls this. The Bible calls this coveting. The Bible calls that coveting. This desire for things that we don't have. So we have some things, and maybe we're fine with the things we have, but we want better things. Or we have things and don't like them at all and want different things. That, the Bible calls that coveting. And here's what I find interesting. Coveting is so powerful. It is very strong. You know why? As a pastor, I talk with people all the time that tell me, it's many of you, here's what I'm dealing with. 
anxiety, marriage problems, conflict issues, job issues, suffering, body image issues, depression. I mean, everything across the board, anger, whatever, all of it. But I can't, I honestly can't think of one time that somebody has come to me and said, I am struggling with coveting. But that seems interesting. Really? Nobody's struggling with coveting? Even though it was important enough that it made the big 10, the 10 commandments, it's important enough that that's on that list. It, God must think, man, this is a pretty big issue that it actually affects a lot of our lives. Jesus talks about it a lot. The Bible talks about it a lot. But you know what? It's so powerful that people don't really think they ever covet. They just think it's normal. Well, of course, this, I'm human. And this is just normal. Coveting is so powerful because it's so deceptive. We, none of us think we struggle with it. It's very similar to greed. I've never had someone come and talk to me and say they're greedy. But the Bible's filled with warnings on greed and conversations about greed. See, the Bible calls this endless pursuit that we have coveting, and yet many of us are blind to the fact that that's actually an issue. So we live in this world. We live in this world that is filled with the best that's ever existed in the history of mankind. We have the best technology, we've got the best food, we've got Amazon, we've got Google, we've got, I mean, just anything that you could imagine, the best entertainment. We, are, we, can, we can travel anywhere, think about this, we can travel anywhere in the world. They couldn't always do that. We can be connected to anybody in the world. You never have to lose your friends again. You can be connected, you can have experiences. We are the wealthiest that the country, I mean, specifically in America, the wealthiest country that's ever existed. I mean, we have so much at our disposal and still discontent. Paul, without any of that, without Amazon, God forbid, without Google, without YouTube, without Pharrell, without any of that stuff, without any of the modern conveniences that we have, said, you know what? I can be content in any situation. Paul, writing, broke, in a prison, single. For some of you, you know, that's hell. Single. I'm not saying it's hell. I'm saying for some of you, that's hell. Single, lonely, says, I can be content. I can be content in anything. So what was his secret? Paul said he learned the secret. What, what was What's the secret of happiness? What is it? What did Paul learn? What did Paul learn that he could not be plagued with this pursuit? That he could live his life and be content? What did he learn? What was the secret? And here's the thing. Happiness is a secret. It's felt like that. It's felt like that right now in the world. It is felt like a secret. You can make big money if you can explain how to get happy to people. There's dozens, I mean, not dozens, there's millions upon millions of blogs and articles and news stories and talks and conversations around how to get happiness. Let me just show you a sampling of these as I was looking. And here's what's interesting. This is only, some, most of these I'll show you are in the last couple days, but many of these, some of them in the last couple weeks, I mean, I could have, I mean, it's endless just in the last couple days and couple weeks, the amount of content that's out there in various places and various channels saying, here's the secret. See, Paul says it's a secret and it is felt like that. Here, here's some things. This is the Washington Post just, just a couple days ago. The secrets of happiness. This is Washington Post. Also, read this if you want to be happy in 2014. These are not tabloids. I mean, these are I mean, all over the place. They're secrets. You can get them. This is just a screenshot of TED. Uh, and there's dozens of talks on happiness. And there's things like seven rules for making more happiness. Want to be happier? Want to be happy? All it takes is 10 minutes. Happy secret. Here's 5280 a couple days ago doing a survey. How happy are you to pull together a survey and help us understand Okay, how do we get happy? Here's, a, I think this is Business Insider. How understanding happiness will be crucial to developing good technologies. 
So it's, if we can understand happiness, then we can make better products. We can make more money. We can have, what's, what's the secret to happiness? Here's Mashable, which is a, a tech blog that pulls in all sorts of content. Uh, tech and social media. British Airways happiness blanket changes color with flyers moods. So British Airways has made these blankets that they, this is kind of interesting, they hook up to you and to your brain that if you're not happy, the flight attendants can see and they can bring you a gin and tonic or a pillow or whatever it is that would make you happy or whatever. But if, okay, if we can understand happiness, if we can peer into happiness, then we can be better airlines. This is Time Magazine, four ways of choosing happiness from within. Tagline, what makes you happy? Or, or first line, I meant, lead paragraph. Business Insider, 11 characteristics of authentically happy people. You'll see a lot of them like this, which is to say, look, here's what happy people do. So this is the secret. If you do this, you can be happy. 11 characteristics of authentically happy people. Huffington Post, healthy section, 12 habits of calm and happy people. Why people in Louisiana are so happy and how you can be too. So maybe that's the issue. We need to look at Louisiana for the secret. Hope not. The four key cornerstones of successful and happy people. And whatever that chihuahua is. The yellow brick road of happiness. It's in the journey. You see all of this. It's saying there's a secret. There's a secret. There's a secret. We'll explain it to you. I'm telling you, this is all just in the last few days. USA Today. So let's say you figure it out. Wes Moss reveals the secrets of happy retirement. You figure it out. You found the secret to happiness, but then it's retirement. Guess what? There's a new secret. The old secret. Now you've got to figure it out for retirement. Dog riding in a Porsche is the definition of happiness. There it is, actually. The dog, it's actually a funny video, but dog riding in a Porsche. Here's the week, seven things the world's happiest people do every day. It was one of the most popular of the week, right underneath why you shouldn't eat dog, not even once, which probably because it's the secret to happiness is the dog. So, so there you go. And then BuzzFeed animals, the 27 happiest sloths in the world. Maybe we need to look at sloths to be happy. I mean, it's filled with, I mean, it's felt as a secret. And here's what I'll tell you, just going through that stuff, if I didn't know the secret from Paul telling me the secret, it would be overwhelming. 12 habits for happiness, four habits for happiness, seven habits for happiness. I mean, 51 talks on Ted for happiness. I mean, it's overwhelming how much you would have to look at to know how can I be happy so much. It's felt as a secret. It's felt as a secret. Everybody wants to know the secret to happiness. And it's almost overwhelming. It's almost, I'm almost discontent thinking about how much you'd have to do to be happy. What's the secret of happiness? Really, here's only a couple options that are presented to us. The first option is this, external. And if you're not trying to give the Miss America pageant answer, most of us, if we're asked, when will you be happy? Or when will you be content? We say it's in our circumstances. It's in our situations. If I get a new job... If I, get a, if I get a boyfriend, if I get a girlfriend, if I uh, get that raise, if, if things change externally for me, then I'll be happy. That's what most people would say if they're not trying to give the right answer. Just, yeah, my situation changes, then I'll be content. Then I will be happy. And so that's what is proposed for many people. Look to some new situation. That will bring you happiness. That will bring you contentment. Or secondly, the option is this, it's internally. So those external people, they're fools. It's internal. And there's all sorts of stuff on there. One of the Time Magazine uh, thing was the four secrets of inner happiness. So it's all about you. Focus. If you it's not about the things out there. If you want to be happy, focus on yourself, yoga, and meditation, and, and looking within. Cultivate inner gratitude and inner peace Namaste, right? All of that stuff. It's inner happiness. Be calm within. Close your eyes. Zen. It's inner happiness. Focus on yourself and that will produce happiness. Gratitude, all those kinds of things. So external, internal, 
Those are really the two options that are presented to us, but both of those are insufficient. Both of those don't really work. They don't work. You know why? Well, let me tell you why for each of them. Thanks for asking. (laughs) You know why? Let me tell you why. So externally, externally, going to our circumstances, a new circumstance, a new situation, we know, I mean, here's the thing. We all know that doesn't actually work. Here's proof. You know what that is? It's a Discman. And when I had a Walkman, which played cassette tapes, I couldn't wait to get a Discman. Once I had a Discman, everything would be fine. Everything would be okay. Life would be in order. And I got one. And I loved it. And I played my DC Talk CD and my Mariah Carey CD. Just being honest. Don't hate. And just listening. And it was wonderful for a little bit, right? And then an iPod came out. You see, if if our contentment, that's a small example, but if our contentment can be achieved, if our happiness can be achieved through the next situation, the next circumstance, why is it that it wears off? Why is it that it wears off? If it, I mean, why is it that there's always a new iteration of new phones and new products and new things if this truly would bring happiness and contentment? Yeah, it does in a moment, in a sliver, but we're like little kids that play with our toys after Christmas for a week and then it's gone. Internally, it doesn't work. Here's BuzzFeed, and this was the 50th happiest animals in the entire world, and there was all these quotes, all of them inner happiness quotes, um, within pictures of animals. Interesting. Um, and the first one was this. This, is, I think, sums up the inner happiness. Folks are usually about as happy as they make their minds up to be. Abraham Lincoln. Okay, so that's the inner happiness. Let me tell you why this doesn't work. Because if you are going through pain and suffering and you come to me and you say, man, my world's falling apart. And I go, everyone's as happy as they make their mind up to be. Is that going to comfort you? No, you're going to slap me. And I'm going to slap myself. And then you're going to be surprised. I slap myself and slap me again. It's going to be really weird. (laughs) It doesn't, that works for good times. It works for good times. It doesn't work. You know what I thought was ironic? Look up here in the corner. BuzzFeed in depth, making sense of suicide with Sylvia Plath. And I read that article and this girl kind of processing through why her friend committed suicide. There was nothing in there about, oh, but I don't get it. Be as happy as you make your mind up to be. See, this is called BuzzFeed in depth. But that kind of inner peace, inner happiness, mumbo-jumbo stuff is shallow. It doesn't work. It works when you're actually feeling okay. It doesn't work in the hard times. How are you going to just make your mind up to be as happy as you want to be when your world's falling apart? Some of you haven't experienced that. Some of you haven't experienced the suffering and the pain, so maybe it seems like it's working great. But some of you have, and you know that just doesn't do anything. So... If it's not inner happiness, and it's not external happiness, what's, what's the answer? What do we do? See, both of them actually point to the truth. There is a reason that we are wired to look externally for happiness. We know intuitively there's got to be something out there. There's got to be something outside of me. So we look to it and all these other things, but we are wired to look externally for happiness. But we also know, but it can't be my circumstances. So what is outside of myself, but it's not in my circumstances? It seems like those are the only options. I, I feel it's outside of myself, but I also feel it can't be the discman. So, so what could it be? And Paul, Paul tells us, he tells us it's Jesus And Paul says that he is not in need. Paul says he's not in need. That's amazing. I mean, he he says, you know what? I don't feel like I'm lacking. I don't feel like I'm just waiting for that next thing. I don't feel like it'll be better when. I don't feel like I'm being left out. I don't feel like it's just around the corner and everything will be okay. Paul says, no, I'm not in need. I I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I'm in need. 
He doesn't feel shortchanged. He, he says whatever situation that he's in, whatever situation he can be content. And here's what's interesting. Paul says he can be content in abundance. He can be content when everything's going well. And we would say, yeah, of course, <laughs> that's not that interesting. But here's what he means. He means that those things don't affect his contentment. He means if everything goes well for him, he's content, but not because everything's going well for him. He means that those situations don't create in him this arrogance and this pride. I mean, talk to somebody that has everything going well for a moment, that seems like they have abundance. They're always still on the search for the next thing. They're always still going after the next thing, the next product, the next investment, the next... They wouldn't just say, yeah, I'm totally content and everything's perfect. That's why often you see the people at the top of their game that have everything that all of us would ever dream of, movie stars and celebrities that, that end it or that go to other things, drugs and this and that. So Paul says, look, I've learned to be content in abundance and I've learned to be content with nothing, in hunger, in lowness. Where are you hungry? I don't mean just physically, although we will have a barbecue momentarily. But where are you, quick plug, where are you hungry? Where are you hungry in life? Where do you feel that pain, that lack, that... Paul says he was content in hunger. He says he was content when everything was broken, when everything wasn't working. He says he was content. Where are you low? Paul says he knows the secret to contentment when everything is low. See, you know what kind of power you would have? You know what kind of power you would have? You know what kind of people, what kind of person you would become if you were content no matter what the situation? I mean, think about, just think about that, how powerful that is. Think about what kind of friend you would be that no matter what the situation was, you were full of contentment, of joy, of happiness. You wouldn't be needy and seeking, I need them to fill me, I need them to give. You'd be able to give. Think about what kind of person you would be relationally. Think about what kind of person you would be in the midst of suffering. That life could throw whatever it had to throw at you. And it doesn't mean you would just smile and sing with the birds, but it means your happiness and your contentment wouldn't be crushed. You wouldn't have these fears and these anxieties of what if this didn't work and what if that didn't work and what if this and what if that. Think about the power behind it. I mean, it's amazing that Paul says, whatever happens doesn't shake my contentment. If I get laid off, it doesn't shake my contentment. If, I, if, I, if she leaves me, it doesn't shake my contentment. If I'm hungry, if I don't have enough money, if I don't have what I wanted, if, I don't have, does, if I'm lonely, it doesn't, if I'm single, if I'm married, it doesn't shake my contentment. Think about that power. That's amazing. I mean, really, that's amazing that Paul says that. I mean, that's what the secret looks like in practice. See, because for most of us, the search, the pursuit of happiness is like going to fill up for gas. We, we, we get a little bit and we run out. Got to go get a little bit more, and then we run out. Go get a little bit more, and then we run out. It's never enduring. And in fact, it's a, more like a gas tank that has a leak in it because it's never full. It just drains always. So Paul says he found the secret. Paul says he found the secret. And he says this, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Or some of your versions might say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, this verse is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Last year, Version, which is the app that most people use for the Bible on their phone, um, it was, this was the verse of the year, which meant that it was the most bookmarked, most highlighted, most shared verse. This is the most popular, one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what does that mean? Because most of the time, the reason that that is so popular, it's way out of context. Here's, if you do a Google image search of that verse, here's what comes up. Mr. Tebow and his gators, I can do all things. I can win the game. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Gal lifting weights. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Kid in a cape and a wife beater. <laughs> That's the thing, right? 
I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me means the way we interpret that, this is false, but the way we interpret that means I can do it. Believe. You can go after your dreams. You can, I mean, it's just the Rob Schneider. You can do it. I mean, that's what we think that verse means. It's just a little bit of Jesus juice that will help you lift the weights, win the race, get through, be Superman. I mean, it's, it's I can do anything. It's just, you know, what your mom told you. You can be whatever you want to be through Christ that strengthens you. Follow your dreams through Christ who strengthens you. I mean, it's just a, a you-can-do-it Nike verse. That's what often we think that that means. But that's not at all the context that Paul is talking about, is it? And Paul is in prison, and he says, I can do all things. Paul is being persecuted, and he says, I can do all things. Paul is hungry, and he says, I can do all things. Paul has people gossiping about him and slandering him and trying to cause harm for him. He says, I can do all things. Pipel, I don't know who that is. Paul has people, and his cousin Pipel also had them. Paul has people that are out to get him. Paul has people that have abandoned him and left him in his time of need. And he says, I can do all things. Paul has sickness, he has suffering, and he says, I can do all things. See, the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, doesn't mean we can do anything we want to do. It doesn't mean we can be anything we want to be. It means that in the worst, we can endure because Christ strengthens us. It means when everything's falling apart, we can endure because Christ strengthens us. It means when everyone has left us and abandoned us and doesn't like us and and starts actually mistreating us, we can do all things because we have a strength that comes from Christ. Not inner peace, not external circumstances and ice cream. I can do all things because Christ gives me strength. That's what Paul means. That's the secret that Paul learned Again, think about the power of that. Think about the power of what you'd be able to endure in suffering, of the kind of friend you would be relationally, of the, of the kind of risks that you'd be able to take for the gospel if you could do whatever because Christ strengthened you. Think about that. So what does this mean? What is the strength that Paul's talking about? What's the strength of happiness? How does Christ strengthen? Because we all pursue happiness And yet it seems elusive. It's felt as a secret. And we go after external circumstances and it doesn't work. We go after internal peace and happiness and it doesn't work. And Paul says there's something else. He says that Christ gives me strength. So what is this strength? What does he mean? What what does he mean when he says that Christ strengthens him? He's He's not talking physically, right? He's not saying, I can do it because Christ gave me a six pack. I can do it because my biceps got bigger. I can do it. Christ strengthens me. That's not what he means, right? He's not talking about a physical strength because he relates it to feelings of happiness and contentment. So he's talking about this effect that Christ has emotionally on his heart. The strength that Christ gives is not a physical strength that makes us buff, It's a strength, it's an emotional, it's something that produces a joy and a contentment. So, how does that work? Well, why are we discontent in the first place? Underneath it all, why are we discontent? And we talked about coveting. Let me retouch on that. Because when the Bible talks about coveting, it also says coveting is idolatry. Which means this, it means that we pursue our happiness in other things instead of God. Those become our gods. That's what idolatry is. It's when something else to you is where you pursue your satisfaction and your joy and your happiness. The Bible says coveting is idolatry. You're worshiping another God. You're looking to another God that you look at as the source, the fulfillment of happiness, of joy, of satisfaction, of contentment. See, coveting is when, and here's how this happens, okay? When your contentment in God decreases, for whatever reason, something happening in your life, your contentment in God decreases, you begin to look at other things. 
So life, for whatever reason, is hard, or maybe you begin to lack a faith and a trust in God, and some of you have probably experienced this. Your contentment in him just begins to drop, and so you begin to look at other things. They look like better, more powerful, more happy-inducing, sexier gods that we would want. Or coveting works like this. Maybe we're content in God, but then we begin to look at other things. So the contentment in God necessarily hasn't shrunk yet, but what happens is we start to get our focus in looking at other things. And the more we want those things, the more we desire those things, the more we think about those things, the more we go after those things, the more we make sacrifices for those things, the more we pursue those things, it fills our vision. It fills our minds. And and this shrinks again, and that becomes God. See, that's what coveting is. Coveting is idolatry. Idolatry is when we look to something other than the true God, other than Jesus, for our satisfaction, our contentment. See, some people think, man, I'm not a sinner. My life is great. I don't do any bad things. Okay, but what's your God? What are you looking to for contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment? See, underneath it all, we are discontent because we look at other things for contentment instead of God. This is how um, C.S. Lewis says it. This is from The Weight of Glory. Famous quote, he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that God doesn't look at us and say, stop looking for happiness God doesn't look at us and think our desire for joy and pleasure and happiness is too strong. Stop it. Calm down. That's not what God does. We have those desires for a reason. God put this in us for a reason. We will find an outlet for them. And C.S. Lewis says what happens is we're like little stupid kids that are playing in the mud and thinking the mud is awesome. And our parents want to take us to Disneyland. We're looking at the mud thinking, this is so great. We're using our lives and and pursuing sex, relationships, romance. We're looking at our lives and thinking it's, it's drink, which could be pleasure and fun and just living it up, having friends and just living life to the hilt or ambition, fulfilling career. That's where satisfaction is, money and success and significance. And C.S. Lewis says, you're like a little kid playing in the mud, thinking you're going to find pleasure and joy in those things. And, And God says not, stop pursuing so much pleasure. He says, pursue more. There's infinite joy that can be found in knowing me and being in relationship with me. We're far too easily pleased, far too easily pleased. See, this is what sin is. Sin is sin is doing things the Bible says not to do. It's not doing things the Bible says that we should do. But it's also idolatry. It's seeking our pleasure in other things more than instead of replacing God. This is just as much sin as anything else that you would think about. Remember, It's in the Big Ten that God put in there. See, many of us use God to love his gifts. We love the world and we use God when we're supposed to love God and use the world. All the good things that are out there that we find joy and those are supposed to be tools for us to delight more in God, to thank Him, to, to enjoy Him through those things, but not for them actually to become the source of our happiness, the end of our happiness. How do you know if you're doing this? You know when your contentment is fickle. One day you're happy, one day you're not. One moment you're okay, one moment you're not. One hour you're fine, one hour you're not. 
one week you're fine, one week you're not. Your contentment is fickle or if you're living in disobedience, you're doing the things that God says not to do. Why would you do that? Because you have a God that says, I will give you happiness when you do these things. When you're not doing what God calls you to do, why would you do that? Because you think happiness is over here by this God, what he says. That's how you know if this is at work in your life. See, we are designed to pursue happiness, but we look for it everywhere else. Here's here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we all hunger and he's not talking physically. We all hunger, we all thirst. We want these things to satisfy us, to bring us joy. And we go after it everywhere. But Jesus says, I'm the bread, I'm the water. See, what does it mean? Many people throw out the phrase, believe in Jesus or believe in God. What does that mean? It does not mean cognitive assent to the fact that there is a deity. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus defines it here. It's to come to him as the source of satisfaction, to come to him as the source of life, to come to him as the source of joy. Do you believe Jesus for, not just that he existed, not just that he died and rose and Do you believe Jesus is bread? Do you believe Jesus is water? Do you believe he's the source of ultimate joy and contentment and satisfaction? This is why John Piper, a pastor and author, says this. He says that the better test of if someone's a Christian is not so much do you believe in God, but do you enjoy God? Because this is what Jesus is saying. Do you come to me for satisfaction? Do you look at me as bread? Do you look at me as water? Do you look at me as the source of satisfaction and joy and life? If not, then you don't believe Jesus for who he really is. You believe in him as a historical figure, but not who he says that he is. And he promises that when we come to him, we will not be disappointed. He is what we're looking for. What it means to find, what it means that Christ strengthens us is that we experience this. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what Paul experienced. Here's one more quote. Here's what Augustine says, early church father. He says that, For no one can escape unhappiness who worships happiness as a goddess and forsakes God, the giver of happiness. Just as no one can escape hunger who licks at a picture of bread and does not ask, for real bread from a person who has it. So what he says is we live our lives in this pursuit of happiness. We're unhappy, we're discontent, so we live pursuing it, pursuing it, pursuing it. But what we're doing is licking pages of bread. We're licking this fine cuisine instead of going to the God that is the bread, instead of going to the God that is the fine cuisine. See, that's, it's not bad. It's not bad to want happiness. It's not bad to desire pleasure and joy. But what's, where are you going with that? What's the outlet for that? God says, I'm I'm the true source and no one will ever escape discontentment that keeps on licking pages of bread. What bread are you licking? It's an interesting question. But what bread are you licking? Instead of licking, (laughs) instead of going to God, So, we get strengthened by Christ when we treasure him, when we delight in him above all things. And how does that happen? Last thing is this. Here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's referring to all the people in the faith that have come before us, that it lists out in the chapter before Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what he's saying. You will be strengthened by Christ when you treasure him. But how does that happen? It's when you look at Jesus, when you see Jesus, and you see, you see what? You see that Jesus was brought low. Philippians talks about this earlier in chapter 2, that Jesus was brought low. He emptied himself for us. It says that Jesus, just like Paul says, was hungry. Jesus in the Gospels says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, which is to go to the cross, to die. See, Jesus, as he was pursuing pleasure, as he was pursuing contentment, it was not in his status in heaven. It was not in his position. It was not in his wealth. It was not in his health. It was not in people liking him. It was not in keeping his life. That what Je- Jesus endured everything. He endured everything. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It was to have us It was to make us his own. It was that we would belong to him. It was that we would be in his family. So here's what what he's saying. You see, if you want to enjoy God, if you want to find contentment in Christ, if you want to see him as life, look what he did. He looked at you and said, I'm willing to go through everything for the joy of having you. I'm willing to go through anything. I'm willing to give it all up I'm willing to be brought low. I'm willing to be hungry. I'm willing to, I'm willing to go through all of that for the joy of having you. I mean, that's great love, right? Especially when we think that the gospel is not that we were awesome, so Jesus did that. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ said, I want you. I want you. My joy, listen to this. God's joy is to have you. Jesus went through everything he went through. He he said, I can be content going through anything. Jesus said, I can be content going through anything because of the joy of having you. When we see that, we can be content in anything, the joy of having him. To the degree that you get that is to the degree that you will understand the secret of of happiness. And Paul says it was a secret he learned. It's not something that just comes naturally to us. It's a secret he learned. And we learn it the same way Paul learned it. We learn it through continually fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, opening the scriptures and, and seeing him and seeing the gospel and seeing his love and, and talking with people and obedience through all these things. That's how we begin to learn the secret that we can be content in anything and have joy because Jesus was content in anything because we were his joy. If you believe that and that goes into your heart, you learn the secret. 